0: And thank you, church, for joining us this morning. Our children are heading to kids' celebration. Please be thinking about them and praying for them. And this week, praying for 300 of them and 100 volunteers. It sounds like they are outnumbered. Yes, uh, as someone did ask this morning, we are aware that one of our projectors is not working. It turns out that uh, that particular model is no longer supported by the manufacturer, but the manufacturer was kind enough to offer to send all the schematics to us. If you feel so qualified and inclined, please give us a call. We'll give you directions up there somewhere. (laughs) Serve it up. This summer, we are looking at churches In the book of Acts, not not just a survey running through the book of Acts, but in particular, bodies of Christ who have gathered together, how are they responding to the world in which they live? How are they responding to the good news which they have received? How are they responding to opportunities around them? How are they responding to obstacles that have come their way? And we begin with the church in Jerusalem. There was a time, a brief time. When all the church throughout all the world existed in one local congregation, the church in Jerusalem, it did not last for long in that one location. The church in Jerusalem lasted itself for about 40 years or so, but there it was. The church in Jerusalem ends up leaving Jerusalem right before AD 70 as the revolt against Rome is taking place and before the temple is destroyed and they will continue to call themselves the church in Jerusalem, but will have nothing else really to do with that particular location. And in 135, when Jerusalem is reestablished as a Gentile city, a new church is established, but that church in Jerusalem really has nothing to do with the church that began during the apostolic period. So this morning, let's take a look at that first church and let's ask some questions. What did they do well? What did they get right? What went wrong? What happened that was relatively so short-lived and then here we are in the 21st century, what can we learn from this? And the description of the early church is both inspirational and aspirational. Jesus tells his disciples and those who are gathered there 40 days after his resurrection, wait, wait right here, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the power of the Holy Spirit and then something's going to happen and you're going to be my witnesses, not just here in Jerusalem, but in Judea and in Samaria and really to the rest of of the world and they wait and then the day of Pentecost arrives, which was our focus last week which is the beginning part of Acts chapter 2 and Peter stands up and preaches this very honest sermon that's very much empowered by the Holy Spirit and before the day is over Luke tells us 3,000 people 3,000 people have heard a message about a new start. 3,000 people have heard that God has not given up on them. 3,000 people have heard that God wants to do something new in the world. And they respond. And as you have heard this morning, we're given this incredible summary of the early church. A summary that I personally love. This is an incredible description of these people who did exactly what Jesus told them and they wait and then their lives are transformed. And this is the description of what life is like for them. And it is encouraging for us. It, it, is, it is something that throughout the ages, churches have looked at this passage of scripture and said, that's really what we are supposed to be like. And, and we like the image of worshiping together and studying together. We like the image of taking care of each other, that there's somehow, there's a real authentic community is there. We like the idea that they are focusing on what the apostles are teaching them remembering what Jesus taught them how Jesus patterned for them this is what it means to be the people of God and yet regrettably the picture that we see 25 30 years later doesn't look like this and so the birthday of the church begins on that day of Pentecost and Peter preaches And there is an incredible response. 3,000 people baptized. That had to take a while. I wish we had a description of what that was like. 3,000 people who received the gift of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people whose lives are changed. It is indeed a new creation. It is a new start. It It is Eden itself. And just like the creation story in Genesis they begin to ask, how sustainable is this in the world in which we live? And so their life will be gathered around the teaching of the apostles, reminding them, as we have done over the last 17 months, what does it mean to be the people of God? What does it mean to be Jesus' people? What did Jesus really teach us? And are we really following that? Are we really listening to that pattern? They explore what it means to really care about each other. Expanding what community means. Giving up what they may have so that those who are now with them will also be taken care of. They break bread together, which in one way just means they're eating their meals together. They like to be together. But it's also a language to talk about sharing the Lord's Supper, what we call communion. Remembering both the death and the resurrection of Jesus Praying together and sharing the gospel together. There's an early church leader named Tertullian in the second century who said, We hold everything in common except our wives. I thought that was kind of funny. (laughs) Such generosity, such sharing, and it is open to abuse. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira versus the generosity of Barnabas and people wanting to get credit to be more generous and more loving than they really are. They share together. They go outside and they talk to other people about this faith and hope that they have now found in Jesus this idea of the kingdom of God. And Luke tells us it's not long before 3,000 people have now become 5,000 people. And that's counting the way first century Jews count, which means that's the men. The number is even larger. And so in the beginning, they are organized around the apostles and the apostles realize We can't do all of this. And a problem comes up, and that is they get the report, the Hellenistic widows have been overlooked in the distribution of food, and these apostles realize we can't keep up with everything that's going on. We're going to need some help, and so seven individuals are appointed to help them to process all the things that are happening each day. By the mid-40s, remember Jesus, think about early 30s, by the mid-40s we see a pattern in how the early church is structured with so many people, so many needs, so many opportunities. The apostles lead, elders are put in place. We don't know how many. It might be patterned on the pattern that they have within local synagogues, but James, the Lord's brother, is clearly the one who is leading, who is guiding, who is caring, and he does seem to do so well. By the time we get to Acts chapter 6, we're still with the early church, but there's a two-fold grouping in the church that we did not anticipate if you're just in Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost and listening to what's happening there. And that takes us to that point where these Hellenistic widows are being overlooked. So we have two groups, at least we know, within the early church. There are these Hebrew Jewish Christians. Now remember, Jesus is Jewish. The disciples are Jewish. The 120 of the day of Pentecost, they're all Jewish. So there are these Hebrew Jewish Christians. That is, they are from Palestinian families. They speak Hebrew and Aramaic. And then there are Hellenistic Jews who have now become Christians and that is they're coming from outside of that Palestinian era they are speaking Greek and um, there is a division. It's starting and so they appoint these seven who are all Hellenistic names of that group to be sure they are not being overlooked. People like Stephen who's not just an organizer, but is quite a preacher as well. And Philip, who will become quite the evangelist. And it's Stephen who will become the first martyr. As he tells the story of what God is doing and just how wide that is and how inclusive that gospel is and how it is now open to everyone and it cost him his life. And pressure is turned up on that church in Jerusalem. But Stephen is part of that Hellenistic group. He's part of that Greek-speaking group from outside of Palestine. And they are the ones who are really feeling the pressure. They are the ones who suffer the most. And two things happen in the church in Jerusalem. Number one, the gospel goes everywhere. As these Hellenistic Christians are now facing persecution and forced out of their lives, they are forced out of Jerusalem, they take with them the message of who Jesus is and what God is now doing in the world. And it is absolutely incredible how the gospel has the power to turn something so painful and so disturbing into an incredible opportunity. But for the church in Jerusalem, It is not a good thing. With these Hellenist Christians now leaving and being driven out of their homes, the Jerusalem church is made up predominantly of Hebrew Jewish Christians. Luke tells us that many of them come from the tradition of the Pharisees and they bring with them many of those concerns and beliefs and leanings and how they are thinking about what God is doing in the world. While these Hellenistic Jews thought it was a great idea, of course, this message is for everyone. Of course, this is what God is doing now in all the world. And of course, Gentiles should also be included. Many of these Hebrew Jewish Christians are not quite willing to embrace that. They have deep reservations Before the story is over, we will know from both the book of Acts and and Paul's writings, we will know that those Hebrew Jewish Christians are wrong. They're wrong. But before we condemn them, before we are too quick to condemn them looking back from the 21st century, I think we should ask, what were they feeling? What were their concerns? What were their fears? And I think it goes like this, coming from this tradition of growing up with the Mosaic Torah, growing up with those kind of expectations they, they were aware of the depravity of the pagan world. And if they throw the doors open and just welcome these people the way some are saying they should be welcomed. If we just say all you have to do is believe in Jesus and be baptized and they come in, what is going to happen to our community? What's going to happen to the purity of the gospel? What is going to happen to our church? And so they say, "All right, for those who are coming from the outside, they need to keep the dietary requirements that Moses said we should do. They need to observe the holidays and in particular keep the Sabbath holy. The men need to be circumcised. In in essence they say if they want to become Christian they have to also become Jewish. For those of us who know Paul's writings and the way he talks about the liberty of the spirit we find that offensive. But let's remember the Gospels were not written yet. Let's remember they did not have a New Testament the way we have a New Testament. And let's remember out of fear, they decide it really should be gospel plus. And so attempting to safeguard the purity of what they have, they compromise the essence of the gospel. It reaches a culmination in what we call the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, which some have called the first meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. It's about AD 50 by this time. So, so now we're, we're almost 20 years past the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as Luke describes it, there is great debate when they get together. And it's Peter who has had now an experience with a Gentile community, Cornelius, who's also part of the Roman military, and Paul, who has been preaching outside that community, in the Gentile community, who brings back these incredible reports about what God is doing everywhere they go and everywhere they tell them what God is doing through Jesus. And they argue. And they debate. And finally, it's James who will speak up. And it's really an unusual passage. It occurs three times in the book of Acts. Like Luke is driving it home, please get this straight. This is what the Jerusalem church decides, the apostles. This is what the Jerusalem church headed up by the apostles about 50 AD. This is what they say to those outside, in particular Gentiles, this is what we expect of you. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to, lo- no, to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. Which is a fascinating list, isn't it? When's the last time you went to someone's home and you said, before I tear into that steak. Can you tell me how that cow died? <laughs> Any chanting going on, by the way, when that happened? It's a, it's a, what is this list about? And this list is the minimum requirements for table fellowship. This list is what's, let's let's get down to the bottom line, how are Hebrew Jewish Christians going to be able to sit down and eat a meal with all of these new Christians? How, this isn't about making them us. This is about making us and them a church. And so the church leadership decides, let's keep it simple. How can we sit down and eat together? How can we sit down and eat a meal together and share in the Lord's Supper together? How can we keep this as simple as we can? And so it is James who speaks on this. It is James who will lead them wisely for about 15 more years. But but we will learn from Paul's letters we will learn that there are some missionaries who will go out from these Jewish, from these Hebrew-speaking Jewish Christians who will go out into the world and tell them, you must become Jewish if you're going to become Christian. And Paul will say things like this about them. They are crooked in all their practices, masquerading as apostles of Christ. Yeah, not good. And James and Paul maintain a friendship, a respect for each other. And the Jerusalem church finds itself in a crisis, a crisis of need and poverty. And in an incredible moment, the apostle Paul leads Gentile churches that are now responding to the gospel to take up an offering for the mother church left in Jerusalem that's struggling during a difficult time. They did not respond by saying, told you so. They did not respond by saying, well, we're better off than you are. They did not respond with angry tweets or name-calling. They took up a love offering, and Paul collects that love offering and takes it back to the mother church and says, we care about you. By this time, it's about A.D. 57, And Paul arrives back at the church in Jerusalem and tells them the incredible things that are taking place. You can read this in Acts chapter 21. Incredible things that are taking place. And he meets with the apostles and they tell him, look, you know there are thousands of people in this church here. And they're really, really zealous about the law. Mosaic Torah and the rumor is that you are telling not just Gentiles out there but you're telling Jews out there you don't have to circumcise your babies anymore and you don't have to keep the dietary requirements and you don't have to keep the Sabbath and we got a problem we need to do something about so they come up with a plan and the plan is this Paul and his companions are gonna go to the temple they're Jewish and they're gonna take a vow they're gonna shave their heads God bless them and they're gonna make an offering appropriate to the vow and they're going to demonstrate for everyone watching that they are pious and they are righteous it is about the church it is about politics thank God that doesn't happen anymore and it seems like a good plan it seems like a logical plan and Paul is arrested there's a riot there's an attempt on his life he appeals to Caesar and when the book of Acts closes he is in Jerusalem awaiting his audience fast forward AD 62 There's a sudden death of a Roman leader. There's a high priest who seizes an opportunity, and James is arrested and stoned to death. The church is demoralized. Shortly after that, the revolt against Rome begins. Most of the church leaves Jerusalem and moves to the Decapolis across the Jordan and will slowly, over time, disappear. So what did they do right, and what did they do wrong? And what do we, as people living in the 21st century, learn from this church in Jerusalem? I suggest we begin here. The danger of cultural uniformity. When that early church, Acts 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and even part of chapter 6, when that church had both Hebrew speaking and Greek speaking, when it had that diversity, when it had people like Stephen who were going out and telling this story the way they understood it, telling the story of Jesus, when they had individuals like Stephen and like Philip who were willing to go outside the wall and outside the camp and say, this Gentile mission is also, this is for everyone, that church was incredibly effective. uncomfortably diverse, and they were the people of God. They were, for a short time, a both-and body of Christ. For a short time, there was room for people like Stephen to be in that church, and there was room for people who came out of the tradition of the Pharisees to be in that same church. Led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then they lost it. Uniformity is not a healthy thing for a church. Whether we're talking about cultural uniformity or socioeconomic or theological. Because it no longer represents the breadth of the kingdom of God. Within the biblical boundaries of Christian faith and life, there has to be room for this rigorous diversity that keeps us alive, that keeps us moving, that keeps us going out and being a part of our mission and makes us aware of just how big God's love is. They started with it. Then they lost it. They lost it because of the danger of safety first. It's quite ironic that a people who followed someone who said, Look, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to be willing to take up your cross and carry it every day. Which is a way of saying, you've got to be willing to die for this every day. Which is a way of saying, following me isn't always easy and isn't always safe. Which is a way of saying, there's danger out there if you're going to follow Jesus. How odd and telling it is that this church will slip into safety first. That we must keep it pure. And so let's tighten up the restrictions. Let's be sure at all costs that we don't give up what we had somewhere in the past. And it's interesting that the Apostle Paul, who is trained in the same Pharisaic tradition, will disagree with them. Paul, who understands righteousness. Paul, who understands the Mosaic tradition. Paul, who also understands we don't build a hedge around it. We proclaim the truth of what the gospel really is. That's how we preserve it. Because with that came the danger of legalism. Legalism. It's a tendency to make rules and regulations for people's lives. Sometimes they are written down and we're allowed to discuss them. Sometimes they are unwritten and we are not allowed to discuss them. And it changes and shifts as the culture itself changes and shifts over time. Some of you remember it. You remember some of those rules. How many of you grew up in a tradition where? You could not be a church member if you smoked a cigarette. Really? Wow. Or, you could not use playing cards. Ah, I see a little. Or, you could not go to a movie theater. I can't tell you how disappointed the first time I went to a movie theater and found out there are people there just watching the movie. Or, and the list kind of went on and on. And on. Now let's be careful how we judge them. They had no New Testament. But they tended to use the Old Testament as a list of rules and regulations rather than the living Word of God. And building that bridge from the first century to the 21st century always requires hard work and study and honesty and conversation and dialogue with each other. And the principles do not change, but the world in which we live continues to change, and how do we explore, and how do we apply those where we live? And let's add one more. The danger of exclusivism. In their fear, they built walls. In their fear, they said no. There's this wonderful British missionary. His name is Edmund Hamer Broadbent. This is the early part of the 20th century, who talked about the parable where Jesus talked about the, the, I, he's the good shepherd. And, and he talked about there's a difference between a fold and a flock, and there's only so many people you can get in a fold inside a wall. There's only so many sheep you can cram in there. But when the shepherd's in charge, when the shepherd's keeping the flock, That flock can grow and grow and grow and sheep are not good at building walls and and sheep get out of those walls and wolves get into those walls, but when the shepherd is there. Sometime read the last chapter of the book of Hebrews. It may well have been written to that Jerusalem church as they were struggling. The very last chapter of the book of Hebrews encourages those people to go outside the wall and to suffer with Jesus even as he suffered. The Gentiles are outside the wall. A needy world is outside the wall. The writer of Hebrews said, Jesus is outside the wall. And he said, you got to go out. You have to go out. So there's Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost before all of this starts to fall apart. There he is standing, and he is preaching this incredible message of who Jesus is and what happened to Jesus and telling them in Jerusalem, you had a part of that, you could have listened and you didn't, and you need to repent and you need to be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and repent, we've talked about this. I mean, stop doing it your way and turn around and do it God's way. It it means stop relying on your own way. It means, listen, there's another way and a better way and the God of all creation for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him, whoever believes in Him, whoever eventually scared the church In Jerusalem, but not Jesus. Let's pray. Hear us, Lord, when we say, out of love, we've built too many walls. Love for you, and love for the gospel. Hear us say when we have refused to go to some, to include some, to open up our homes and our lives and even our church. It's been our fear. We don't want to lose what we have valued so highly and what has meant so much. And hear us when we say, more than anything we want to be Jesus people we want to follow you and we want to know what kind of life you have dreamed for us to have even now so for those sitting in this room who have never said they want to follow you may they feel your love overwhelm them and welcome them for people who have struggled And looked for a place where they would be loved. People who would walk with them. Talk with them. Live with them. May you make us that kind of community. And may you send us. Outside the wall. May your will be done as you taught us to pray. On earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name. Amen. It is a remarkable turn of events that take place in those opening chapters of the book of Acts and it is nowhere the end of what is going to happen to the church as it will expand and expand and as people will hear the incredible simple news, hey, the creator of all the universe cares about you. You are not alone. We share with you that message today. If we can pray with you, if we can talk to you about where you are now and what God may be leading you to do, we invite you to be a part of that conversation. Will you stand as we continue our worship?